Hello, this is Nevin Brown with From Downtown! Episode 2. In this episode, we're going to go over NBA playoff game 1s, do some series picks, then we're going to do the playoff bracket and eventual championship, and finally, we'll uh, ask a few questions about does the NBA have a three-point problem? But real quick, let's just go over a quick recap of episode one, my playing games and picks. So I picked the Pacers over the Hornets, which I got right. And then I picked the Wizards over the Celtics, which I got wrong. But the Wizards ended up beating the Pacers. So in the Eastern Conference, at least, I was sort of two for two with who I thought would uh, make it in, just I didn't get the seeds right. And then the Western Conference, I got Grizzly Spurs right, because I picked the Grizz. And I also got the Lakers Warriors right because I picked the Lakers. But I ended up being wrong. I thought the Warriors would beat the Grizzlies, which they obviously didn't. So I think I did all right with the playing games. And I think most people would forgive me for picking the Warriors over the Grizzlies. But sometimes the shiny things distract us, being mainly Steph Curry. So real quick about the playing games. The Lakers avoided the disaster and that LeBron shot, which I think is the marquee moment from the game where he shoots that 37-footer right in Steph's eye. And let's be real here. If the Lakers had lost that game, that would have been pretty, pretty, pretty pathetic, seeing as the Warriors aren't a great team, and the Lakers, even with LeBron and Davis missing so much time, were clearly the better team. LeBron was definitely in cruise control, which I don't know if I think is good, as we'll see from Game 1, but I do really think that that ankle is he's still trying to manage and he's a master at managing his energy and game states. But him being in cruise control kind of in a must-win game for the first half at least, I don't think is a good sign for the Lakers long-term. The Wizards, my Wizards, really the fight in Westbrooks because at the end of the day, the Wizards go as Westbrook does. It's why they lost against the Celtics, and it's why they beat the Pacers. He wasn't good against the Celtics. They get the L. He was very good against the Pacers. That's why they got the W. The problem with Westbrook being the Wizards' engine, in my mind, is Bradley Beal is better, and you want to build a team where if Bradley Beal is good, you're going to win games, because Bradley Beal is good pretty much night in, night out. You don't average 30 points a game without being good pretty much every night. So that's a problem for probably next season, because as you'll hear with my playoff predictions, I don't think the Wizards' season is going to last much longer. Jason Tatum for the Celtics. He's really good. He's been really good. I mean, he he dealt with COVID this season, and he was one of the long haulers in that he had kind of symptoms after uh, recovering enough to be able to come back. I think he's going to be an MVP candidate as soon as next season. Incredibly good player. Can score from anywhere. Good defensive player. He reminds me a bit of Kawhi Leonard, but offensively, he's so much more advanced than Kawhi was early in his career. Probably not as good a defender, but let's be real here. The Celtics' future, regardless of how this season has gone, is very bright because they have Jason Tatum. He's that good, and he's also that young. People forget how young he is because the Celtics have been in the conference finals so often. Still not even 25. I mean, this guy's got another decade of being an elite player. Don't overreact, Celtics fans. I know you will, though. The Grizzlies. Now that they have Jared Jackson back, who really basically missed all all of this season, I think they could be frisky. I think they could give the Jazz some problems. I don't think they'll win the series, but I think they'll be a tough out. Jaron Jackson's one of these guys where he's a cold game changer because he can play as a stretch four or five. Those types of guys are perfect 
in the playoffs because they give you that lineup versatility that coaches really need if you want to make a deep run because you need to be able to throw different looks at teams, but also you need to be able to adapt to whatever the other team's strengths and weaknesses are. And he's kind of that skeleton key in the front court because of his three-point shooting and his ability to protect the rim. Having him back is great. And obviously John Morant, very good young player. And finally, let's talk about the Warriors real quick. You know, they're a long way off. And I think the idea that next year they'll be a contender is just completely asinine. Klay Thompson's a good player, good two-way player. I think he's always been kind of overrated. It's what happens when you're a good player on an incredibly good team. Those players almost always get overrated. I mean, we still talk about Robert Ory. Robert Ory wasn't a great player, but he was a pretty good player on a lot of championship teams, so we still talk about him. I think Klay Thompson's obviously better than that, but the main point being is if you're a good player or if you're a player on championship teams, your status always gets elevated. And I think Clay Thompson's kind of like that. And I just don't think him coming back next year after two years away from basketball and an ACL and an Achilles surgery, he's going to come back and make this team suddenly much better than it already is. The team needs, regardless of how good Clay is, he could be great for all I care. They still need better depth and their cap situation is going to make it nearly impossible to add at the fringes. So outside of James Wiseman having... A serious boost in year two, which is possible, but meniscus injuries aren't good. People kind of act like the meniscus injury is a whatever surgery. Some guys come back are fine. Russell Westbrook was. Some guys come back and are never the same athletically. Uh, Chris Paul is like that. Obviously, he's so talented, it didn't really hurt his production, but Chris Paul pre-meniscus injury was a deadly athlete. Still good athlete, but was never the same. So, Hopefully Wiseman comes back and is good, but I really think the Warriors are a long way off. It's it's sad. They were the they were a great dynasty, probably the best team in NBA history. Uh, you can argue that those Bulls teams of the mid '90s, mid and late '90s were better. I would say, no, the league back then had didn't have nearly as much talent, and those Warriors teams are just absurd. I mean, they made five straight finals. Those Bulls teams didn't. All right, now we're done talking about the playing games and kind of where some of those losing teams go from there. I guess if we want to talk about where losing teams go from there. Pacers, who knows? They have some talent, bad injuries, coaching staff having issues, whatever with them, right? They're the Pacers. No one really cares. Hornets, young team on the rise, shows how important Gordon Hayward is. I'm sure the Celtics wish they had uh, held on to him because they probably had a lot better season. Hornets would have had a lot worse one. Spurs are interesting um, because at the end of the day, Let's uh, let's be real here. People don't really pay attention to him. DeMar DeRozan was awesome this year in terms of efficient scoring, not a three-point shooter, but an efficient scoring uh, in the two-point game. Really, really good assist numbers, uh, especially for his career. He's not never been a big assist guy, but this year he really ramped it up, and he's super low turnover. If you want to think about DeMar DeRozan, he's on offense. He's kind of like you know 80% of what Jimmy Butler is in a lot of ways just not quite as good at the things Butler is good at and not as good defensively, but he's a really good offensive player. We'll see what they do with him in free agency. I think they should let him go. They have a good young core with Jacob, uh, was it Jacob Puddle, Puddle or whatever. They got him in the, got him back from Toronto when they traded for Kawhi Leonard. Uh, he's, he's very good defensively and they have a bunch of good young wing depth and good young guard depth. They're a team that next year, are going to surprise people. I think people think that the Spurs are kind of fading. 
I think in a year or two, they'll be right back in the playoffs and kind of one of these sneaky teams in ascent. They're going to have to get lucky with the draft pick, uh, bringing someone good because they're not really a big free agent destination. But hey, you know, Kawhi could be a free agent, maybe wants to give it one more go in San Antonio, but I doubt. All right, let's go talk about the Saturday slate and do a, a NBA game, NBA playoff game ones and do some series predictions because at the end of the day, you're not a podcast unless you're trying to predict the future, which is really weird. It's almost like this is sports horoscope. All right, let's, I think I'm going to do this chronologically. If it's not chronologically, who cares? Game. The first game I'm going to talk about are going to be Bucks versus Miami. Milwaukee won 109 to 107 in overtime. This game was defined, in my mind, by the bad games by each team's best players in Jimmy Butler, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Bam Adebayo all having bad games. What was really interesting was how Milwaukee came away with a win, even though the discrepancy in three-point shooting between the team was massive. The Bucks shot 5 of 31, which is 16% from three-point range, while the Heat went 20 of 50 for 40%. If you just take a step back and just do a little basic math, that's 15 points to 60 points, right? That's a 45-point advantage from three-pointers for the Heat, and they lost that game. Goran Dragic and Duncan Robinson were both awesome in that game, and it just really feels to me like, while even though people focus on Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo not being good, the Heat had a massive advantage in three-pointers. Two role players had great games, and the Heat couldn't win that. That's not good because those are the games that the Heat, who are a team that I think have way less talent than Milwaukee, are the underdog. If you're going to win a series like that, you have to win the games where your role players have good games. And game one, that was that game, and they weren't able to do it. So that's the game Miami should have won. Miami should have won game one if they wanted to win this series. They lost it. I think the Bucs win this series in five. They're the better team, and they won even though they were bad, right? That's what better teams should do. That's what they did. I think Milwaukee plays much better in game two. I don't think it's particularly close. Butler and Bam might play better. But once again, the Heat don't have the players around Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo to make their life easier. Those two guys are the offensive engine for that team. They're not going to create easy. They're not going to have other people create easy buckets for them. They might, they'll shoot better, most likely in game two. But Milwaukee has the guys to defend them. You can put Giannis on Bam, and you can put Chris Middleton, who's okay, but you can put Drew Holiday on Jimmy Butler, and then they still have, you know, Lopez, who can drop back, protect the paint. Neither of those guys are three-point shooters. So I just think they had the chance for Miami to maybe steal the series was if they won that game, based upon how it played out. They way up, they got the Bucks with a bad three-point shooting game. Goran Dragic and Duncan Robinson were both awesome. I think Dragic had 27 points. He looked really good. Robinson was hitting threes left, right, and center, and they lost. Sorry. Bucks and five. All right, let's go on to game two uh, from Saturday. Dallas versus the Los Angeles Clippers. All right, let's be real here. The Clippers are the narrative darling of the NBA. We can't stop talking about them. They can't stop getting in their own way. And last year, with the way the first round went, where Dallas gave them everything they could handle, and if it wasn't for the Kristaps Porzingis knee injury in that series, there's a real chance Dallas would have beat them in that first round. But then, you know, the Clippers went out, and they got a 3-1 lead last year on the Denver Nuggets, and they blew it. 
this team's really good. They have Kawhi Leonard, Paul George. Those guys are the two best 3 and D wing players slash isolation scorers in the league, right? They are awesome. And that's why they're going to probably win this series. But Luka Doncic is the real deal. His game one performance was absurd. He dropped 31 points. He had 10 rebounds. He had 11 assists. Crucially, he only had three turnovers. Being able to produce those numbers with only three turnovers against what should be pretty consistently two elite uh, wing defenders in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, that's amazing. That's why Dallas won the game. But let's be real here. That's not going to be the norm. Luka might be able to get his 31 points. He might be able to get his 10 boards. He might be able to get his 11 assists night in, night out. But I just don't see there being a world where the Clippers aren't able to force more than three turnovers. He's probably going to keep those three stats, the 30, 10, and 10 range. But I think those turnovers are going to tick up, and that's going to be the difference in these games. And that's why I think, in the end, the Clippers are going to win this series in seven. Let's remember, the Clippers were a historically good three-point shooting team during the regular season. They went 11 of 40, 27.5% from three-point range. Dallas went 17 for 36 that's 47.2% from three-point range. The Clippers only lost by 10, and they were outshot at the three-point line in a way that they almost never are and never were during the regular season. That will change. There's going to be a game where the Clippers outshoot Dallas. Matter of fact, there's probably going to be most games where they outshoot them. And then you factor in that they're going to be able to get a few more turnovers out of Luka, and chances are they're going to take control of this series. I'm picking Clippers in seven because let's be real. Dallas has game one. They have the best offensive player in the series in Luka. Porzingis wasn't great in game one and he should play better. But I just think at the end of the day, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are so good. So good at what they do as wing defenders and then being able to score in the half court, hit tough jump shots. That this series, no matter what people think about the Clippers' mental inability to produce in the playoffs, I think they'll put that to bed. This series, though, should be a lot of fun and should make NBA Twitter go nuts. And that's really what this is all about. Playoffs, unless you have a rooting interest for one particular team, it's all about entertainment. I think this series is going to be one of the most entertaining. So I'm picking the Clippers in seven. And hey, Luka's so good that he can win this series for Dallas. But I just, once again, I don't think that three turnovers, he's going to be able to be in that low turnover place every game. And if he starts getting in the six or seven, eight turnover games, which he's capable of doing against good defenses, he'll still put up the numbers, but he's going to give too many chances for the other team to get easy points. The next game we're going to talk about, Brooklyn versus Boston. This, this one I'm not going to talk too much, right? Brooklyn won 104 to 93. Brooklyn's big three of Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden is too much for Boston's big one of Jason Tatum. This series over. I don't think anyone thought Boston was going to win, but let's be real. The Nets didn't shoot well, and they still easily won in the end. Boston, I think, will get one game. It'll be a gentleman's sweep. Boston will get one game when it'll be maybe 3-0, 2-0, and the Nets' big three kind of just lose interest because they're toying with the Celtics, and Tatum will have a big game at that moment. And then that will be Boston's one playoff victory, unless you count the play-in games, which weirdly aren't part of playoff stats. NBA's got to figure that out, but that's a different discussion. Nets in five. Tatum will have one big game. Boston fans can get ready for next season and think about what could have been 
what could have been that trade exception. And they'll have Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum in a much less topsy-turvy season. Maybe Kemba Walker, they can get off his deal and bring in some real talent. But they're a team that will be quickly thinking about next season. Brooklyn, easily in five. All right. This is the final Saturday game, and it was the late one, and I tried to watch all of it, but I must confess I I fell asleep because age is catching up with me, and the blanket was oh so warm. But anyways, Portland won this game 123 over the Denver Nuggets, 109. Portland was lethal from three-point range. They went 19 of 40. That's 47.5%. I mean, if you're over 40% as a team, you're doing something right. If you're almost at 50%, you had yourself a game. Most teams, if they shoot that well from three, shouldn't lose. So Portland winning this game when they shot that well, that's to be expected. And Denver, conversely, was not good from three-point range. They went 11 for 36. That's 30.6%. That's pretty much the difference in the game. The other big thing is the refs gave Portland the benefit of the whistle. For as good as Damian Lillard is at drawing fouls, I just don't understand how a team with Nikolai Jokic and Michael Porter Jr., Aaron Gordon, and the ability to get shots around the rim, it's not like they took a ton of, it's not like they took more threes than Portland. They lost the free throw attempt battle 19 to 8. That should not continue. That 11 difference in free throw attempts and then the massive difference in three-point shooting, that's why Portland blew out, in some ways, Denver. Those two things won't continue. So I think this will be a very good series. We got to remember, Jokic was unstoppable in that game. He absolutely balled out. And Michael Porter Jr. did not miss a two-point attempt. He was perfect on his two-point attempts, and he went one of 10 on his threes. So if you take a step back and you say, oh, he went one of 10 on his threes, that means the rest of the Nuggets went 10 of 26 on threes. Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty normal. Porter Jr. hit like 45% of threes on the season. He's not going to go one of 10 again. Might not go 100% on his two-pointers, but you get the point. The the Nuggets will see a boost in their three-point shooting. And at the same time, Melo went four of eight and Anthony Simmons went four of five from three. They're not going to be a Splash Brothers all series either. I think this was kind of the game where Portland had everything go right and they won it. And those are the games you got to win because if everything goes right and you lose, you're you're fucked. You're not winning that series. I will say, I do think Portland trying to prevent Jokic from being the playmaker, holding him to one assist. I think that's a good strategy. A lot of teams back in the day actually used to do that against Steve Nash when he was running the Suns when they were awesome. They were like, hey, if you can score 38, fine, but we're not going to let you set other people up. I don't think they can continue doing that. Portland has a really bad defense. Bad defenses can't keep doing that. And if they are able to keep doing that, then I think Jokic is going to be living at the 35 plus point per game mark. And I just don't know if it's a good idea to dare the likely MVP, likely best player in the league, at least this season, to try to go get 40 every night. That doesn't seem to be like the most winning strategy. Damian Lillard's awesome and he's perfectly capable of stealing this series. But once again, Jokic is still the best player. And I think the second best player on each, if you're going to compare the, who's the better between each team's second best player, I think it's probably the Nuggets as well. I think Michael Porter Jr. is better than anyone on Portland. CJ McCollum's good, but I mean, Michael Porter Jr., if you go look at his stats, it's, it's absurd. We're talking about a guy who's like 50% from the field, 45% from three-point line. Like he's a, he might be someone that, 
we have to come up with a new thing where it's like the 55, 45, 90 club because he's going to do that. He's he's that deadly as a shooter and he's so tall that you can't really alter your shot. This will be a great series. I think it'll be the best of the first round. People won't pay attention to it because the games are going to be late. It's two kind of cities that people don't care about, two organizations that people don't care about. But I think Denver wins this in seven. I could be wrong. Anytime you pick a series to go seven, you're not super confident in the team that you're winning. But this should be the best series. If you can you know, take a five-hour energy and stay up, watch this series. I really think it's going to be a super entertaining series because Trailblazers can score. They can't defend. Nuggets have the most dominant offensive player in the league. Their defense is just okay. That sounds like a really fun series to watch. All right, let's move off of the Saturday games. And let's start talking about the Sunday games. And we're going to start out with my Wizards. Not that I really care about them because, no offense, they're not a very interesting team. They haven't been for that long or haven't been for interesting in basically my entire lifetime. They had Michael Jordan for a while. That was a thing. He was old. He was bad. And he took a lot of shots. And they ate Kwame Brown. He'll fight you. Anyways, Philadelphia, Philadelphia 76ers won 125 to 118 over the Washington Wizards. I mean, this series was over before it started. Philly was the one seed. Washington was the eighth seed. And the Wizards literally needed to play like a top five team just to make the play-in tournament. Yes, they were playing well recently, but let's let's take a step back and think about this. If you need to be a top 10 team in the league over the last 20 games of the season just to be one of the six just to have one of the, like you know be the 16th best team and really when you think about it it's probably even lower than that seeing as making it into the eastern conference playoffs is a lot easier in terms of record you know they're still kind of a bottom third team in the league and they need to be amazing so it means the first 50 games of the season they were really bad. Those components still exist, all right? The Sixers are a much better team. And also, I think they're the perfect matchup to beat a team like the Wizards and exploit their fatal flaw. As I've talked about earlier, the Wizards go by Wussel, by Russell, Russell Westbrook. He, unfortunately, is who they've hitched their wagon to in terms of their game results. The organization has hitched its long-term future to Bradley Beal. But in terms of a game-by-game basis, if Russell Westbrook is good, the Wizards will win. If he is bad, they will lose. And unfortunately, he's kind of one of those guys where if you look at their record, you see he's good half the time and he's bad half the time. Sometimes he gets on a run and strings together four or five games where he's good and you think he's the best player in the league. And then sometimes he plays four or five games where he's horrible and you're not really sure how someone decided to pay him $40 million a season. It's just the way it is, and I think with Ben Simmons being able to guard him on the perimeter and Joel Embiid lurking in the paint, I don't think Russell Westbrook's really going to be able to have a good series. I think it's almost impossible. He's one of the most inefficient jump shooters in basketball, if not the most inefficient, especially for a high-volume shooter. He's horrible. Simmons ain't going to make that easier, okay? He's going to make that harder. So all of his offensive value needs to come from him being able to get to the rim and finish or dish out to guys. And Bede lurking in the paint is going to make it real hard to finish. 
Philly's got very active, good defenders. I just don't think he's going to be able to pass his way to efficient offense for the Wizards without also turning the ball over a ton and missing a ton of shots. There's no way the Wizards really can win this series. That is, they could steal a game maybe if Bradley Beal decides to take over a game, gets really hot, maybe they get one game, but I really think this is going to be a sweep. I think this might be the only sweep of the first round. The Wizards are not a good team. There's a reason they were had to literally play perfect basketball to make a play-in tournament. They're not a good team. Sixers have been a good team all year. They have a perfect lineup construction to beat a team like the Wizards, which is highly dependent on one bad shooter leading the charge. They're going to make it a living hell for Russell Westbrook. Spent too much time talking about the Wizards. Real quickly on the Sixers, their finals contender. Earlier in the season, I wasn't so sure, but I think they've I think the additions they've made this season, adding more three-point shooting, Tobias Harris, now in an offense where he has more space and they can get good matchups for him, where he can either he's on a guy who's smaller than him, where he can exploit that height advantage, or a guy who is bigger than him and he can exploit a speed advantage with more spacing has opened up his game. He's a guy who got a max deal for a reason. Last year, everyone was talking about like, oh, he's not good. No, he's good. It's just if you play a lineup with Tobias Harris, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, and Al Horford, you're going to have issues. It's just you can't do that in the modern NBA. You're, it's not going to work, and it didn't. Embiid is a monster. We'll talk more about him as the playoffs go on because that's when it's going to be important. He's going to kill the Wizards. They have no one that can defend him. No one really has anyone that can defend him. As you saw from game one, Ben Simmons was running the show. And if he can distribute like that, that takes Philly, I think, to a whole nother level with with what, what their upside is. Because his offensive con- contributions all season have been up and down. Sometimes you're like, especially when Embiid was gone, he could take over. But the passing numbers weren't there like they had been in the past. If he's going to be like 10 to 12 assists a game type of guy with elite defense, we're talking about essentially peak Draymond Green. Peak Draymond Green was the second best player on a team that won three titles, or I guess you could say third best once KD was there, but the second best player on a team that won a championship and then won 73 games in the regular season, okay? If he can do that, you're talking about having maybe the second or third best interior defender and one of the best perimeter defenders in the league, both of which contribute in elite ways on offense. Philly, very scary. They'll take care of business. All right. This is probably the biggest game and probably the best series in terms of pure talent or in terms of how good these teams truly are. It's going to be Phoenix winning game one, 99 over the Los Angeles Lakers, who only scored 90. The Lakers, we all know, they're not a real seven seed. They, they're obviously much better when they had all their guys before injuries. They have the be- best or second best record. Phoenix took advantage of their injuries, got the second. Second seed wouldn't have likely happened if injuries hadn't happened. But hey, this was a season where the healthiest teams are going to have the best record. That was always going to be the case. Now we kind of get a second round or maybe even Western Conference Finals series quality series in the first round. So this weird truncated season, not great from a competitive standpoint in terms of picking the best teams, but great from an entertainment standpoint. Let's remember, the Lakers lost game one throughout the Western Conference Finals and then swept their way afterward, winning the next four in those first two series. And I think they even did it for the first three, right? It took them 15 games. They lost game one. They would win next one. 
I don't think them losing game one is a big deal. And the best part is they didn't waste a home game doing it. So you say, all right, they lose game one on the road, whatever. They still have three more home games. They didn't waste their home court advantage. They win game two. All of a sudden, they're in the driver's seat. Anthony Davis is the best player on the Los Angeles Lakers. People say it's LeBron James, and I think he's their most important in terms of organizing the offense. But I think Davis really is the better player of the two at this stage in terms of his ability to impact the game on defense and offense. He, at his best, is an elite defensive player that can make up for a ton of mistakes. He's awesome, all right? If he's right on defense, the Lakers are going to be hard to score on. And he's also a great, efficient scorer from all over the court. So it's why I don't think he's going to continue to go 5 of 16, shooting 31%, all right? He won't be that bad again. And then on the flip side, DeAndre Ayton, good player, good young player getting better. I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Shaq in his prime. No one's going 10 of 11 again. He's no one shooting 91% for a series. That won't happen again. So let's think about it this way. Phoenix beat LA by nine points in a game where the Lakers' best player, maybe most important player for their chances of winning, had a horrible game that won't happen again. And their kind of third best player had a game where he was amazing, which also probably won't happen again. They only won by nine, okay? So their margin for error from from my takeaway from this game one is incredibly small for Phoenix. They basically have to hope that Davis and LeBron have bad games intermittently and DeAndre Ayton or one of their three, four, five, six best players have really big games. And that's just not something you can count on. Chris Paul's also already banged up. This is the Chris Paul. I love Chris Paul. He's one of the, I think he's one of the most underrated players of all time. I think he's the second best player of his era behind LeBron James. Fantastic. It just sucks every time he gets to the playoffs, he gets hurt. And if he's hurt, they're they're screwed. He's he's they're not good enough to have one of their best guys go down. That's just the reality. They got the second seed because their guys were healthy pretty much all year. LeBron also was coasting for most of that game. This is what LeBron does now at this stage. He coasts game one. If they can steal it, great. But he's coasting. And we'll see if it, it might just be because of the ankle. But if it was just him doing his, I'm going to feel everything out. I'm going to let game one go how it needs to go. And then I'll turn it on because I have all the matchups I want. I have all the information that I need. I'm going to do the crazy computer brain thing that I do where I just take over a series. In game two, that's what happens in this series is is Lakers easily. Both teams shot poor from three-point three point range. I don't think there's much to read into that. I think the Lakers will win big in game two. And at the end of the day, this series is probably going to come down to who wins the matchup between Davis and Ayton. And I'm thinking Davis is going to win four out of six of those matchups. And the Lakers are going to take this series in six. LeBron will be LeBron. Booker will be Booker. Paul's probably, even regardless if he's hurt, is still going to be a good player. At the end of the day, can Davis be better than Aiton at the level we know he should be? Yes, and he will. Lakers are going to win this series in six. Okay, now we're on to the, the thirstiest fan base. The New York Knicks lost to the Atlanta Hawks 107-105 on what was basically a game-winning shot, a floater by Trey Young. Fantastic shot. I don't really have much to say about this series. I think Knicks fans and the, the bias towards New York sports teams in the media have made this series into something that it's not. I don't think this is really a, that close of a series. I mean, let's let's take a step back. The Hawks won that game because they had the best player 
in the series. And you look down each team's roster, they probably have four of the five best players overall, with Julius Randle being maybe the second best player in the series. But even then, I don't know. Randle had a great season, but we're talking about a guy who put up the numbers he put up because the Knicks didn't have enough offensive talent. Like, he was their best offensive player. If Julius Randle is your best offensive player, you're not winning a playoff series. I'm sorry. He's good, but he's not that good. And at the end of the day, talent wins. The Hawks have more of it. The Knicks' defensive intensity could steal a few games, but it's not going to win you a series, especially not in the, the current NBA. And they're not going to win the series now because they lost the home court advantage. MSG could have been a real game changer. And then they lost game one in a game where they're chanting, fuck Trey Young. And then he literally wins the game and shushes them, finger to the mouth, shushing them after they're telling him to go basically fuck himself. And then he responds with the biggest F you that he can think of, which is a dagger in the heart. I just think that game one, if the Knicks can't win with that type of energy, with that type of crowd, even though Randall wasn't good, if they can't win that game, they're not going to win the series. And, you know, this game, this series could be over pretty quick. The Knicks are a really good story, but this isn't a fairy tale. This is real life. I think the Hawks win this in six. If they were to pull this out in a sweep or even five, that wouldn't surprise me. There's no way this series goes seven. I know in the outset, people thought these teams were pretty evenly matched. No, they're not. The Knicks overachieved all year. The Hawks underachieved for the first half of the season, and then they kind of showed who they were. They're a really good team. Are they championship caliber? No, but they're definitely the fourth best team in the Eastern Conference, and they should be the fourth best team in the Eastern Conference for the next few seasons. We'll see if they can't rise above if or if one of those top three teams fall out of the picture. All right, the final game from Sunday. Probably the least watched game from Sunday, seeing as the two mark media markets these were in with the time that it, the game was uh, played and broadcast kind of, yeah, doesn't do it any favors. But Memphis, the eighth seed, having to play their way in from being the ninth seed, beat the mighty one seed Utah Jazz 112-109. to and while this was a good upset for Memphis, I think this will be inevitably their only win of the series. So let's talk about why. Utah lost by three. That's not very much. They went 12 of 47. That's from three-point range. That's a 25.5% rate. I don't know about you, but that's probably not going to continue, seeing as they were one of the best three-point shooting teams in the league. They were shooting nearly 40% for the season. If they had just hit 33%, they would have won last night, probably pretty easily. And that would have been without Donovan Mitchell, who is their best isolation scorer. I don't think he's their best player necessarily. I think him and Gobert and Conley are all relatively equal in terms of talent and importance. But he's their best isolation scorer. He probably is worth, what, four points at least over who they're putting in his place? Let's be real. The Jazz shot poorly from three and didn't have their best isolation score and lost by three. That doesn't bode well for Memphis. Memphis played great. Can't take that away from them. And it should be celebrated. It's always fun when an eight seed plays really well who snicks a game from the one seed. But going forward, they're not going to get 31 points from Dylan Brooks every night. Right? Rudy Gobert 
won't be in foul trouble every game. And as I've already noted, the Jazz aren't going to shoot like a JV team from three. And that's what Memphis needed to just barely win without the Jazz having their best isolation score. That doesn't bode well for the rest of the series, right? Memphis played their best and Utah played their worst. Donovan's going to come back and the Jazz are going to cruise. I think it's the only game that Memphis wins. I think the Jazz take this in five. I also think it's probably good for their title chances that they lost this game. Because I think it's a wake-up call that everyone needs to be locked in because the NBA is just too good. If they had gone through this series and just absolutely steamrolled Memphis, I think they might have gotten a little complacent. I expect Game 2, Utah to come out and absolutely pulverize Memphis, and then I expect them to be good in Memphis and then come back home and finish it out in Game 5. All right. Now that I've gone over my first-round picks, series picks, talked a little bit about Game 1s, I'm going to go talk about my NBA playoff bracket. And I'll probably be wrong on some of these, or maybe I'll be right. Who knows? I did win my NCAA tournament bracket. I picked Baylor to win it all. So if you're questioning my ability to gamble, just know I have been good in the past. And prior performance is the best indicator of future performance. Okay? Let's start with the Eastern Conference because it's where I live in the East. All right, so as I said earlier, I think Philly wins over Washington. I think Atlanta wins over the New York Knicks. I think the Bucks win over the Miami Heat. And I think the Brooklyn Nets win over Boston. That's pretty much chalk outside of the Atlanta-New York Knicks matchup. So that sets up a second round matchups in the East of Philly versus Atlanta and Milwaukee versus Brooklyn. I'm taking Philly over Atlanta. I think Atlanta is still a, a few years away, and I just think that Trey Young is important to that offense. And at the end of the day, if you can put Ben Simmons on him or Thibel on him, he'll be muted enough that it won't really matter. So I think Philly wins that series. The Milwaukee-Brooklyn series is going to be great, and I think Milwaukee comes out ahead. Brooklyn's awesome, but I think Milwaukee at the end of the day has the ability to disrupt and cover on defense against Brooklyn's big three in a way that almost no other team can because of Giannis, Drew Holiday, Brooke Lopez, and even Chris Middleton, who's a solid defender. So I think that is the reason why Milwaukee will end up becoming triumphant is because I think Brooklyn needs to be elite night in and night out to beat a good team. And I think Milwaukee has the right lineup versatility on defense because they still have P.J. Tucker, to disrupt Brooklyn's offense to make it go from being elite to just good or very good. And that probably won't be enough with their defense to beat a good team. So that's why I'm picking Milwaukee over Brooklyn, which sets up an Eastern Conference final showdown between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Milwaukee Bucks. Pretty sure that was the matchup when the 76ers went to the finals and won game one against the Lakers and then got steamrolled after that. Might have been. That was a long time ago. This time around, though, I'm picking Milwaukee over Philly. I think this is Milwaukee's year. I think they've done everything with how can we win in the playoffs. They had a best net rating in the Eastern Conference. They have Giannis. They have Chris Milton, who I think is very much an underrated player. He's an incredibly efficient shooter. Those things matter. True Holiday is the real deal. I think Milwaukee makes it to the finals out of the East. Philly 
is always a Joel Embiid injury away from irrelevancy. And guess what? It can happen. I'm still, even if Embiid's healthy, I pick Milwaukee over him. I think they have two guys that they can throw at him that can slow him down. Pretty much no other team in the league has that. All right, let's go move over to the Western Conference. So we have Utah versus Memphis, which I'm picking Utah because I'm a coward and going to pick the one seed over the eight seed. We have the Clippers playing Dallas. As I mentioned earlier, I'm picking the Clippers. But, you know, if Dallas were to shock the world, I wouldn't be too surprised, I guess. Still, I think the Clippers are an incredibly good team. Then we have Denver-Portland and Lakers-Phoenix. So I'm picking Denver over Portland. I think they have the best player in the league. I think that matters. And then Phoenix-LA, I'm picking the Lakers because, I don't know, it seems like not picking the Lakers is just a bad idea. Until LeBron shows that he can't do it, I'm going to have to ride with him, especially in the first round. The guy's never lost a first-round playoff series. I don't think this is the year. I don't think this Phoenix team is the one to do it, and I think this Lakers team has enough talent to get through. So that sets up a matchup between the Utah Jazz and the Los Angeles Clippers. I'm big in Utah. I think they're the best team in the season all year. I just think that that matters. I think they have an incredibly good, deep team, and I don't know who the Clippers have that can actually stop Rudy Gobert. He's not an offensive threat, but he's incredibly good as a rim runner. And if he can give the Jazz 20 points a night, that's pretty good. I know Zubak is a good interior finisher, but I don't think he can handle him on defense. I don't think Serge Ibaka can handle him on defense. And this notion, if you play Zubak, he can't stretch it out. So you're going to have to play Serge Ibaka, who's had this incredibly long layoff from a back injury. Who knows really how healthy he is and how good he's going to be. And if your plan is, let's see if Serge Ibaka is healthy enough to stretch the floor and make Gobert has made strides at being able to go out to the perimeter, come back and defend the paint. I just don't think that's going to be able to work. And I think the Jazz defense is going to be too much. I don't think the Clippers will be able to score at the rate that they're used to. And Utah's a dangerous offensive team. Sure, you can put Kawhi on Donovan Mitchell, you can put Paul George on Donovan Mitchell, but Mike Conley is really capable at creating Joe Ingles has been absurd this season. He's really hard to disrupt. They have a lot of good players that can do a lot of good things, and they're a great three-point shooting team. So I think Utah is going to be able to beat the Clippers, and then that will set up the Kawhi is a free agent bonanza in the summer, which, God, if he doesn't resign with the Clippers, that would be something. So this sets up Denver Lakers in a rematch of, God, is that the Western Conference Finals from last year? And like the coward that I am, I'm going to pick the Lakers over Denver. As much as I love Jokic, I do think that Anthony Davis is one of the few guys that can really give him trouble as a defensive player and slow him down. And then the rest of the Lakers team is incredibly good at defense, so it's going to minimize Jokic's ability to pass. And if Davis is on him and limiting his ability to score and be as effective as a playmaker as he can usually be, I think that's going to slow down Denver's offense enough that the Lakers can just bludgeon them. Because as good as Jokic is on offense, and he's a decent defender, I just don't think he's going to be able to slow down Davis. And if he can't slow down Davis, then they either have to figure out, maybe give up some scoring, perimeter scoring, perimeter creation to try to slow him down, but it might mess up spacing. It's just Davis is one of the best players in the league for a reason. He creates matchup nightmares for everyone because he can be 
the best center in the league or one of the best power forwards in the league. And you can do so much with your roster construction and the lineups you put out there with a guy like him. So that sets up Utah and the Los Angeles Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. And I'm picking Utah. Like I said, they've been the best team in the league. Gobert is legit. I think Gobert is the Bill Russell of his generation. If Bill Russell can win 11 championships, Gobert can win one. That's what I want to believe, which sets up the NBA's nightmare hellscape scenario of the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Utah Jazz. Ugh. Would Adam Silver allow it? I mean, he can't not allow it. But God, I think Milwaukee will end up winning the championship. I think Giannis is that good. And between the two, let's be real, I think Giannis can give enough trouble to a guy like Gobert on defense where the advantage that Utah has over most teams because Gobert's defensive ability starts to get a little bit lessened and they have the right guys to be able to cover the perimeter to stop Utah's great three-point shooting. Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, P.J. Tucker, and then you throw out someone like Dante DiVincenzo, and you have four guys who can really bother guys on the perimeter and limit Utah's ability to move the ball and create open looks at the three-point line, which is really how they generate such good offense. So that is my quick rundown of who I think is going to be the NBA champion. I think it'll be the Milwaukee Bucks. They have three top 25 two-way players. I don't know if any other team has three guys like that. So that's huge. And I just think that wins in the playoffs because you have to play your starters so many minutes that you need them to be able to not only score at an above average rate, but defend at an above average rate. And I think they have three guys that can do that. And not a lot of teams do. So that's where I'm going with them. All right. The final thing I'm going to get to, and I think if you picked up on my analysis of these game ones, it's going to be, does the NBA have a three point problem? So let's just look at the stats. In game ones, the better three-point shooting team won five of those eight games. The Celtics, Wizards, and Heat were the only teams to shoot better from three-point and lose. The Wizards and the Celtics are admittedly way less talented than the two teams they played. And the Wizards also only took 23s. And the Heat, while they managed to shoot 40% on three-pointers on 50 attempts, so they were 20 of 50, the Heat shot 16 of 49 for 32% on two-point attempts. So really what we saw is that if two teams are like kind of not completely stinking up the joint compared to the other team, or if they're not abysmal from two-point range, the team that shoots better from three-point range is going to win. And it especially means these later series where the teams are much more even in talent are just going to come down to three-point shooting on a game-to-game basis. And it's just the league is trending towards this this sameness of three-point shooting being the only way to win. You know, it's king, and it's likely going to crown the king. It's not good. In a lot of ways, the NBA needs to figure out a way to level the playing field from a shot diet standpoint. Threes are great, but the more and more teams use them to win, they kind of become less, less impressive they lose their luster. Remember, the dunk contest was awesome until we saw every dunk imaginable. And it just kind of became, oh, there's a thing to jump over. Oh, that's a thing someone hasn't jumped over before. That's a cool dunk, right? So I think the NBA, at least in the style of play, is trending towards who can take and make the most threes. Let's remember, the NBA needs the three-point shot 
to just be a, needs to be a feature of the game, but it can't be the feature of the game. It can't be the end all be all. It needs to be an aspect of offense that is there, but it can't be the overwhelming dominant form of offense. Mid-range jumpers are bad shots, but that's just because of math. It doesn't mean they're aesthetically bad. It doesn't mean they're like not incredibly difficult to do and hit. It just means the math says you shouldn't do it, which means teams aren't going to do it because that's what the math says. And if you don't like that math dictates the way teams play, then there should be no scoring and we should not keep track of score. And then we can decide the winner any which way we want. But as long as you're going to use numbers to determine who's going to win games, then math is going to help you figure out the best ways to win. And math says mid-range jumpers are bad. And I don't think that's good for the NBA. You want all sorts of shots to have value in a certain way. And I think too much value is now in the three-point shot. Partially, it's because guys are just so much better at making than they were 20, 30 years ago. The NBA needs to figure this out because I think we're going to watch these playoffs and we're going to go, who won the game? And I'll just say, well, who hit more of their threes? That's probably who won the game. And is that really fun? Do we really want these games to come down to three-point shooting contest? Sure. There's different ways to generate open threes, but it can't be the only thing that matters. I like analytics and analytics are telling us that three pointers are the most valuable shot. And that means analytics are telling us that three pointers are too valuable. They're too out of whack. They're not supposed to be valuable to the point where it's probably the only shot you should be trying to take outside of a layup which are incredibly hard to generate. It's much easier to generate threes. This is just some food for thought as you watch these playoffs to just think about what's the way that the NBA can make three-pointers less valuable. I think personally for me, you get rid of the corner three. It's shorter. It skews the numbers in favor of three-pointers because it's closer, so it's easier to hit. So it boosts the overall percentage of three-point conversion. They could also just move the line back. There's so many different ways that they could fix these problems. They might have to after this. They probably won't. People seem to like threes, but I'm just saying it's going to be weird in a decade from now when we're watching games and 75% of the shots are just bombs from distance. That's not going to be fun. And I think that's where we're headed, especially if as we watch through the winning team is the better three-point shooting team. As much as I bemoan shots from downtown, this was the, that's the conclusion of From Downtown episode two. If you like, I guess you can subscribe. I really don't know how those features work. I have to probably pay more attention to my fledgling podcast. But hey, I just like talking about basketball. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll try to be back next week with more playoff coverage. And as we get through the playoffs and there's less games and teams to talk about, I'm going to start talking about where each of the eliminated teams, and so we'll start with you know the Rockets and the, the non-playoff teams, where their future is headed, what they need to do in the offseason, what their cap situation is like. So if you're interested in anything like that, please stick around and go through the growing pains as I improve and as you know the production quality improves. I doubt it. Um, but yeah, I've had fun. I hope you did too.